outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 67. Today in the show, we're talking all things trail cameras, and we're joined by terrific guest, Don Higgins. Welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast. We've got a good one for you today as we're talking trail cameras. And joining us is a repeat guest, Mr. Don Higgins. Now, if you missed our first episode with Don back in December of last year, 2014, I'd highly recommend listening to that one. But if you did miss that, to catch you up just a little bit, Don is a really serious Illinois whitetail hunter, an outdoor writer for magazines like North American Whitetail and others, and an author of a couple of great deer hunting books. He's a guy that I've learned a tremendous amount of um, from when it comes to hunting big, mature bucks in especially high-pressure areas. So... I'm excited that Don's with us. Today, he's going to share with us some really great insights when it comes to trail cameras, and our plan is to just grill him on all things trail cameras. It's something we haven't taught. We've talked a little bit about with a bunch of different people, but we've never dove deep on it with a guest. So I'm excited to do that with Don here, and it's, you know, of course, very timely since it's the summertime, and if you're like me, you're obsessing over trail cameras right now. But before we do that, I need to trash talk a little bit with the man, the myth, the co-host, Dan Johnson, also known as Dallas-Fort Worth. Dan, this is the last podcast, this is the last podcast of the summer in which you will have the upper hand on me. Okay. Okay, so so bring the trash talk, I'm waiting for it. I'm going to get a booner this weekend. I'm going to okay. get a booner on trail camera, and I'm going to smoke you in the trail camera bet. I'm, I'm, that's all there is to it. It's going to happen. Well, I, you know, I hope you do Mark. And if, you know, if you need that to be successful in life, then (laughs) (laughs) if you need this one, you know, you can have it. But, uh, I was thinking about this bet, right? So my question to you is we, we discussed, we discussed total number of inches, right? Yeah. So what happens if 
you get some giant Booner 12-pointer, right? And I have, let's say that it's like 175, 180-inch 10-pointer. And I have a 150, 160-inch 8-pointer. Is there going to be, is, is this scale going to be weighted at all? I think it gets too subjective if you start okay. doing that. I, at least for me personally, I think you just got to keep it simple with inches. Gotcha. That's the only real way we can really, you know, accurately quantify score. Because if you start saying, well, how much is an eight-pointer worth, then it gets weird. Yep. Nope. I just figured, you know, because I've seen some pretty big eight-pointers on my property in the past and uh, that that are, are really big. And that Buck Megatron from years ago that you've seen, he was a giant eight-pointer. And I've seen some, you know, four-year-old 150s that, you know, a 150 10-pointer and a 158 pointer looks completely different. Yeah. Very, right. Very true. But, you know, you can trash talk me all you want. Um, you can win if you want. But, uh, you know, I I have a couple trail cameras that I have, like one trail camera that I haven't checked yet. So who knows what's on that one. That's by a, an ag field. And, um, you know, the, the rest of my bucks will, should be close to finishing up their growing by this weekend when I'm going to go check them. And, uh, and. After that, you know, I think I'm going to move a couple trail cameras and throw some corn out just to see what's in different areas of the farm. Hopefully the water's low enough to where I can get back in there and, you know, maybe put one last extra try to, to beat, you know, to beat you. But, you know, if that, what's that, Glenn, he's the biggest one or is it Beast? That's well, the biggest one. Well, as of last year, the Beast and Junkyard were the two that were, were definitely the biggest. Mm-hmm. So I I saw Junkyard on January 2nd. So okay. there's a good chance he made it. Um, I don't know about Beast. I think the last pictures we got of him were mid-December. But if either one of them make it to this year, or Glenn, any one of those three, they could be they could be Booners this year. So nice. Well, I tell you what, it's the the good thing about it is you're on a property where anything can happen, and I'm on a property where anything can happen. And you know, I've had trail camera years where I didn't get junk on my, I didn't get nothing on my trail cameras, and then. I've seen studs come through, you know, middle of October or even late, late October. So who knows what could happen? You know, yeah, this bet's fun and we're, we're making something out of it. But what you get this time of year doesn't necessarily represent what's going to be on your property in two months. It's very true. This is this is really more just about bragging rights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not really exactly. about what's actually going to happen during hunting season. That's for sure. Right. I I gotta say though I do have this like reoccurring nightmare, where in the middle of the night you give me a call and you just tell me that No Show Jones showed back up on your trail camera and he's like two ten, yeah, and then I just cry myself back to sleep. He probably wouldn't be two ten this year. He'd probably be two seven, two oh seven. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, don't get your hopes up for that. Yeah, that would be crazy. <laughs> I didn't get any velvet pictures of him last year. He just when did he show up? October seventh. Ah, so he's first late. time he was on my trail camera. He's a late shower. That's well, good for I, me. I also don't have trail cameras down where I believe his bedding area is. Just too difficult to get into right now? Well, it's just anytime there's a heavy rain, it floods no matter what. Like the oh, river yeah. flood. It's all because everything around it's uphill all the way. So all the water comes down, it floods, and goes back down real fast. But last year... uh a combination of wet and the crops got rotted out because the water stayed for like two or three days and then all the crops got moldy. 
So I, I felt, you know, why go down there when there's no crops? Yeah. And bump, get, have the chance of bumping anything. But are you going to be setting trail cameras this, or uh, stands this weekend too? I've already got stands hung, but I'm going to go out there and just check them all, make sure that straps are good, trim out anything else that I might need to that might have grown up, uh, just some maintenance, stuff like that. So the plan is I'm gonna we're going to drive up early on Friday so we can get there in time for me to sneak out and sit on the edge of the bean field tomorrow or Friday night right. and try to hopefully see something come out and feed. And nice. then I'll pull the cards that night after dark. The next morning we'll go back, and that's when I'll do the maintenance and check on things and just make every sure, make sure everything's good. I'll add. I think I'm gonna we're gonna add a third trail camera on the property, make sure those are all good to go. And then that night we're just gonna do a drive around the neighborhood, hopefully see some more deer out in the field, and then head home Sunday. So now I got a question for you. You leave your you you yeah can't talk. You leave your tree stands up all year round. Ah, well, it depends. Are Sometimes, they hang-ons? Yeah. Okay. So on, on our Ohio property, they they have I did leave them up over the year. Yeah. I don't know, man. I've had too many worst-case scenarios happen where someone either steals them. Like, I don't know how they did it because I, I don't leave my sticks up. I leave the hang-on up. And they must have brought a ladder and, and took it down. That's crazy. Yeah. And the other one is squirrels. If I leave it up all year, they chew the seats out of them. Yeah, I have had that happen too. I've tried it when I'm when I'm on my A game. I try to remember to take the cushions off mm-hmm. over the season, but I've forgotten to do that too. And I've got some chewed tree stands. Yeah, actually, Ben from Huntera is uh, coming to film me and help me hang stands this weekend. So it's going to be pretty fun, and we're going to probably do some glassing and driving around and. Uh, it's going to be a fun weekend. I just love doing these kind of things, especially when I don't get to get do them as much as I used to. And I'm sure that kind of goes the same for you. Yeah, it will be a fun weekend. I heard I talked to Ben. He said the same thing. I'm jealous you guys are going to get to do that. But me and Corey will be doing the same in Ohio. So we'll have to uh, keep each other posted on, on how it's going. Is Corey still uh, trying to steal your sheds from you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> I won't go into it, but there's a good story about he uh, he stole one from me in Ohio the weekend after you, we were all done with you. But that's a story for another day. I don't know if I can trust that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a shady character. <laughs> shady. Except for the the key is to make sure he's sleeping, which happens most of the time, as you saw. On the on the drives, <laughs> we weren't even in the car for five minutes and fell asleep. Oh gosh, we were hunting during the rut last year, and me and Corey and my other buddy Josh were all sharing a hotel room in Ohio because we're all you know trying to stay down there for cheap. And we were back for some reason during the middle of the day. I think maybe it was the day I shot my buck, and so we recovered him and took care of all that. And again, within like five minutes of getting back to the hotel room, he's laying on the bed like. Looks like a dead person. The way he's laying there, his mouth's <laughs> open. He's sprawled out. And so for like 15 minutes, we just took different pictures of him and texted it to all of our buddies. And uh, we would try to wake him up or poke him, and he he doesn't wake. So <laughs> he's one of the – Hi, a good, Corey, by the way. Yeah, hey, Corey. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to call me after listening to this pissed. <laughs> what gives, man? <laughs> what are you guys talking about me for? That's how I like to pretend he talks. <laughs> I don't think he really does, but that's my character of him. Well, trail cameras, trail cameras. I think uh, Don is going to have much more useful stuff to talk about when it comes to trail cameras than than you and me right now. So, 
I think it's time to give Don a call. And, you know, my plan, Dan, is that we just ask Don every question we've ever had about trail cameras. He's been using them for a long time. He uses them a lot. And I think he's got a lot of interesting insights he can share about them. So, yeah, I'm just curious what his kind of plan throughout the season or the entire year compares to what I currently do. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So I'd say let's uh, let's give Don a ring. All right. All right, here goes. But quickly, before we do call Don, we need to pause for a brief word from our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear. And we're continuing on with our series with Dennis Zuck, the whitetail product category leader for Sitka. And today I wanted to ask Dennis about the Optifade camouflage patterns that Sitka uses, which are very different from most other mainstream camos. And to me, it seems like Sitka looks at camo from a scientific angle rather than just trying to look like everyone else. So, Dennis, is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so we've 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 put a lot of time and energy into this question, and uh, we've worked with experts like Colonel O'Neill from West Point, uh, you know, Dr. Knights and, and Guy Kramer and people who are just experts in their field of vision. And, you know, when you think about camouflage, you know, there's really, you know, when you look at a mimicry pattern, you're looking at something that to you is high def. You can see the lines, and it's it's crystal clear. But what a lot of people don't think of is what happens when you get away from that product or that piece or that image. Um, what happens is, is you really don't see those lines anymore, and everything starts to become one big thing. It's a term, isoluminance is the, the fancy word people use. But so when we look at camouflage, we absolutely believe it is scientific. And you think of how a deer or an ungulate is the, the fancy word there that that, that that animal sees, you know, in the blue spectrums and the color visions they may or may not have, or the, the eye that's not in the front of their head, but the side of their head, the 280 to 280 degree range, you know, thinking about, well, let me, let me, let me look through their eye. And well, what does that have? What happens then? You know, where am I hunting? If I'm looking up, what happens then? Um, all of those things are absolutely inputs that we believe are important to consider, not in the end, but in the beginning when you start to develop, when you start thinking about how do I make a better thing? And, you know, the results are different. They look different. Some call it digital. I would call it scientific. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka's Optifade camo or their whitetail line of gear, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get Don on the line. All right, with us on the line now is Don Higgins. Welcome back to the show, Don. Uh, thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate it. Yeah, we uh, we really enjoyed chatting with you back in December of last year, and we, we just had to make sure we talked some more and got some more information out of you, so we're excited to do that. But uh, how's your summer been so far? Are you seeing some big deer yet? Uh, yeah, I've actually got a few trail camera pictures of some pretty nice ones. Um, I don't do a whole lot of, you know, observation, you know. I don't want to pollute my areas any more than absolutely necessary so i don't sit on bean fields in the evenings like a lot of guys do i just let my trail cameras do that for me and even though i'd like to have some video footage of some of those bucks i just feel that the less pressure the better yeah that's a tough line to walk it's always really tempting to see what's out there but to your point you don't want to screw things up before the season even starts Right. And, and, you know, occasionally I do go out. If I get a buck that I'm planning on harvesting that fall, if I get the opportunity, and I don't have a lot of history with the buck, sometimes I'll go out and sit at a distance uh, with the hopes of maybe getting a little velvet footage that will add to the story later. Yeah. Yeah, Last year year in December when we talked to you, you'd mentioned that there was a a really nice deer that you wanted to see get to the next year. And I think if I 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think if I remember, you had mentioned that you thought you knew where he was. He was on a specific property, so you were just leaving it alone completely because you wanted to make sure he made it through. Um, has he made it through? Yeah, he did. I, I've got several pictures of him already. And the I guess the bad news is last year he was a 6x6 six six with a fork G2 on one side. Wow. This year he's a 5x5 five five with both fork G2s. And uh, I don't know if he's going to score as well as he did a year ago. Okay. Um, but he's definitely got a little more mass. But I think it, well, it cost him he don't have his, uh, you know, his six typical point on each side. Uh, and it might have cost him a little time length. You yeah. Know, what are we looking at for a score, gross score? Oh, he's definitely in the 170s. Uh, nice. he, he might hit 180. And I think he would have definitely hit 180 a year ago. And he still might, but. Uh, and is he going to be a five-year-old this year? Uh, this year he is. Let's see. Yes, he's five this year. So uh, is he is he going to be a bucker and target, or are you going to try to try to give him another year still? Well, I'm kind of still up in the air about that. I just got a new lease that uh, just kind of fell into my lap this summer that I have no idea what's there. I, I put one trail camera up so far. And uh, haven't even checked it yet. Uh, just kind of trying to get a feel for the property right now. So, you know, if, if there's a giant there, then I'll probably see if this buck will go back to a six by six mainframe and maybe keep those four G2s on each side. And, and uh, you know, he might have a big jump in him yet. I, I've seen wild bucks that didn't have their best racks till they was nine years old. So I, I don't give up on them too early. Yeah, he uh, he could be a mega toad next year if he if he put on that n- another set of points. Well, that's what I'm hoping, and, and he's always had him. He's always had at least six points per side since he was a yearling, and uh, very few bucks will catch my eye as a yearling, but he's one that did, and uh, you know he's been there every summer, same property, and he, he ranges off the property a little bit in the fall, but uh, there's one particular draw right behind a farmhouse. Uh, that always holds a handful of does. When the hunting pressure gets on, the crops start coming out. The does seem to pile in behind the barn and stuff in that little draw. And uh, come mid-November, trail cameras always show that buck showing up there. Uh, so I know he's going to be be in there come mid-November. And I've got a couple stands for various wind directions on that draw. That you know, I'm set to go after him. It's just you know, it depends on what else I find between now and the first of November. Yeah, right, we'll be interested to hear what you end up doing. Sounds like he'll be he'll be an incredible buck either way, whether it's this year or next year. But tough decision, I yeah. guess. I can understand that. I've yeah, got and a, you know, I, I did misspeak. He is six years old this year. He, he's not five. I uh, last year he was five. This year he is six. So uh, I've been watching him for a while. Yeah, definitely a mature buck. I got a question for you. And this, you know, I guess if we're going to start, we can start like start here. Um, and this, this may not even be about what we're going to talk about today, but you run trail cameras and you've been following and you have history with some of these deer. What years, like let's say between four or five or five and six or six and seven, what years do deer, do these bucks tend to make their biggest jumps? Have, have you noticed a trend with that at all? Yeah. And actually, my answer is probably going to surprise you because uh, I, I find a lot of bucks when they're three years old. That kind of tells the story. 
Uh, between two and three, they make a big jump. And a lot, I can't even tell you the percentage-wise, but well over half of the bucks that I've ever followed uh, do not make major jumps after three years old. They'll put on mass a little more. Now, some of them do. Don't get me wrong. There's some that do, but a lot of them, you know, if they're a basic eight at three years old, they're probably going to be a basic eight-pointer at five years old. Um, they might add a little time length and definitely will add some mass, but they just don't add a big jump in score. The reason I asked that is because I had a a guy who's his name is Sam Calora. He's a a deer yep. farmer and a whitetail hunter extravagant or whatever that word is, and uh, he tells me that a, a deer skeletal system stops grow like reaches maturity at the end of its fourth year, meaning that the calcium that would go into um, grow bone density now can be transferred towards antler growth and that from from what he said the biggest jump is between the fourth to the fifth year i didn't know if that was uh anything that that you, that you have witnessed in in your uh in your years well yeah i've seen a lot of bucks do that no doubt about it and sam's absolutely right they the skeletal system will mature at four years old and and sam raises some captive deer as do i so we've both had first-hand experience with bucks that you know we absolutely know the age without a doubt and uh and he's right about that but but there's a lot of bucks that that i see that just you know at three years old whatever they are is what they are and they don't get much bigger right I mean, they'll add some mass they might add a little bit of spread but you know you, you just don't get like a 25 inch jump in, in any one year after three years old so but sorry go ahead Dan. On the other hand, the, the biggest buck I ever shot uh, as a three-year-old, this is uh, almost 11 years ago, uh, 12 years ago now, but uh, I, I missed that buck as a three-year-old. At that time, I was my goal was 140-inch deer, and he was at that 140-inch mark and just barely. Um, I missed that buck. He was three years old. I found his shed antlers uh, that winter. I didn't see the buck the following year when he would have been a four-year-old, but the the fall the year after that when he was five, I ended up shooting him, and he scored 214. So from three to five, he went from 140 to 214, and and in fact the the jump was so incredible that I had the I'd killed the buck and I got him back from the taxidermist, had him hanging on the wall, and I bet it was four to six months later before I realized it. One day it just hit me. He's like, wait a minute. I better go, let me go grab them sheds. And I held them sheds up there, and there was absolutely no doubt it was the same deer. Wow. That's nuts. Yeah, and I would have never even, I mean, it just, the difference between three and five on that deer was so incredible that it, without putting the antler right up to, to the other antler, you would have never guessed it was the same deer. That's crazy. So yeah. I, just, I just did a little bit of uh, on-the-air research. And there's an article uh, from the Quality Deer Management Association on their website sharing some data from research done at Mississippi State University and Texas A&M who tried to research, you know, quantify this exact question. So, you know, as we've both, as we've all mentioned, there's all there's always going to be anomalies. Some deer don't stick to this. But if you average everything out, the largest jump is from one and a half to two and a half, actually, where they go from, on average, about 30% of their potential growth to 60% of their potential growth by two and a half. That's the largest on average. And then from two to three, on average, they jump up by 20%. So at three and a half, 
most average deer have reached 80% of growth. Um, and then it just slowly goes up from there. So to your point, Don, after three and a half, there's not a huge jump. It kind of slowly goes up for the average deer. Um, so between five and seven is when the average buck will peak. So interesting little bit of, uh, insight there from, from researchers. Yeah. And I think we as hunters don't tend to give the bucks enough credit as for being individuals. It's, uh, to put it in human terms, you know, we all went to school with those guys that were in junior high were shaven and were already built like men, you know, and then other guys that didn't mature until, you know, you go back for your 10-year reunion and that little runt that was in your class, he's the biggest guy there. I'm still and waiting for that to happen to me. Deer. <laughs> yeah. Well, me too, but uh, I've just watched, you know, over the years, like this summer, for example, I've got 21 bucks here in, in research pens that, that I'm watching mature or grow, grow out their racks. And I've been doing this for over 20 years. So in that, in that 20 years time, I've watched hundreds of bucks grow that I absolutely know without a doubt what their age is. And that kind of brings up a pet peeve of mine. I, I see all these articles and this stuff on the internet, you know, about age this buck, age this buck. And I'm, I'm telling you that it's about impossible to do. Their, their bodies are different, and uh, their racks are definitely different. Uh, you know, I, I've got deer in pens that people would say are, are five years old that are two years old. And, and vice versa, you know, I've got older bucks that look young. It's just, you know, it's kind of the same way with people. I mean, there's people that are 50 that look like they're 30, and there's people that are 50 that look like they're 80. So, uh I think uh, I don't want to pick on Quality Deer Management Association, but we've kind of done a disservice to deer hunters thinking that we can judge a deer by a picture or even, you know, visually because it's just about impossible to age them that way. And if I ever mention a buck's age in an article or a seminar or anything, it's a buck that I've watched grow up. Uh, if I start getting a picture of a buck on a trail camera and I know he's a year later, I know he's a two-year-old, and and then I can go back and look at past, you know, uh, year's photos of that same buck. And, I, you know, I'm pretty pretty certain whenever I mention a buck's age. Um, but, you know, I think we've tried to to uh, make ourselves a little smarter than what we really are <laughs> uh, in, in that regards anyway. It's definitely tricky. There's, Like you said, there's so many intricacies and anomalies where there'll be deer that just don't fit the mold. So right, it's tough. And to, with tough an average right. deer, you know, just like with people, you know, the average guy is gonna look a certain way when he graduates high school, and you know, a certain way at thirty years old and forty years old and on down the line. But there's gonna be some individual variance within that as well. Yeah, yeah, so true. So it sounds like, you know, just just based on what we've been talking about already, it sounds like you've got a lot of experience with trail cameras, um, but. How long have you been running trail cameras, and how many do you usually run? I'm curious. Uh, I can't remember when I got my first one. I know uh, in 2004 when I, I shot my big buck, I, I had one trail camera at that time, and I tried my darndest to get a picture of him, and I never did. Um, but today I, I've got uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 of them. Um, I run them extensively on properties that I'm going to hunt or have permission to hunt or very close to those properties. Um, there's a couple of situations where I've got permission to hang cameras where I don't have permission to hunt, but I hunt nearby, so I just kind of try to inventory 
the buck herd in the area. And the hunt, I hunt primarily in three different counties. So I've got those cameras continually being rotated uh, within those three counties on multiple properties. and gives me a pretty good feel for uh, the bucks that I've, I can select from to, to go after in the fall. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. That's, that's, pretty, be... that's pretty unique. I've, I've never thought about asking permission to hang a trail camera on a neighboring property that I don't have permission to hunt. That's, that's kind of put a spark in my head. That's good, yeah. Yeah. I'm always looking for an angle, you know. Well, I just kind of matured as a hunter to the point where, you know, shooting a 150-inch deer doesn't really do it for me anymore. And it used to be that just the other day I was counting up how many properties I've got access to this fall. And I counted 12 properties that I've got permission to be on this fall in those three counties. But the truth of the matter is, I will probably spend time on only half of those properties. In other words, half of the properties I've got permission to hunt, I won't spend a single day hunting just because although I will have a trail camera on every one of them throughout the entire season, which I'll monitor, but, you know, if you want to shoot 170-inch or bigger deer, you've got to go where they are at. You can't just go where you've got permission and hope one will show up. Uh, And, you know, the biggest revolution in deer hunting since I started back in the 1970s is trail cameras. They just, um, it used to be the only way you knew if a buck was there is a personal sighting or find a shed antler. You really couldn't take anybody else's word for it because what's huge to one guy is, is, you know, not much to another. So, uh, these trail cameras have just allowed me to, to be scouting properties 24 hours a day almost 365 days a year uh, i'll put my trail cameras out about the first of july and then i'll pull them once the bucks have shed antlers usually in march so i'm always just i'm looking for the next giant buck to go after and uh, if i got to go to a spot that's close to where one of my properties are but where i know i'll never get permission a lot of landowners will, will give you permission to hang a, a trail camera because they want to see what's there too. And most of the time, they'll say, "Yeah, would you show me your pictures as you get them, or email me the pictures, or whatever? Stop by and show me." And uh, I've done that a lot. But uh, one thing. But I've you delete the big years, ones, right? Exactly. <laughs> I, I made that mistake years ago. This is no joke. Years ago, I got a giant buck on this little property and uh, got pictures, I mean, excellent pictures of this buck hitting a mock scrape that I made. And I was telling the landowner about it and his wife, well, the wife wanted to see the pictures, so I thought I'd be nice, and I went and had an 8 by 10 blowed up and made for him. And the very, very next year, there was a tree stand, right, and I told him where I got the picture, too, right in the exact corner. The very next year, there was a tree stand in that corner right where I told him. Oh, They'd given geez. somebody else permission to hunt, and that's it some family member you know and told them where i got the the picture and i'll never make that mistake again <laughs> so what's the biggest buck you've ever got on trail camera done mm. probably oh i don't there's a couple that were probably in the 180s nice big boys but, yeah, two of the biggest bucks. Well, the big buck I shot, I never got a picture of him. And then the very following year, there was another big one in that same area that I was after. 
and a friend of mine ended up shooting shooting the buck during gun season, and uh, I think he scored 197. Jeez. And I did not get a picture of that one either. Those those biggest of bucks are tough to find, whether it be during hunting season or in trail camera, I guess. Yeah, you got to throw something different at them, just kind of like hunting them almost. Uh, you know, the first time in your stand is, is the best time to kill a big buck, and it's almost that way with trail cameras. You need to... Uh, the first time you set it out, you know, you can't be stomping back and forth just like you don't go hunt your stand, same stand every day. You can't put a camera out and then stomp back in three times a week to check it. I'll put them up and, and wait at least. The, the most I will check a camera is every two weeks. And there's there's some properties that I won't even check them once a month. And is that just during the hunting season or is that during the summer or hunting season? How does that – how does your your – intervals between checking change between those two times a year well during uh this time of the year you know when i'm trying to get bucks in velvet it's about every two weeks um then i'll shift those cameras basically from soybean fields uh back into the woods about the time bucks are shedding velvet i'll check those cameras and that's about the first of september and i'll check cameras around the first of october uh, to see, you know, how the bucks have shifted their range, what what bucks might have moved on to a property, and also which ones have moved off. Uh, and then uh, a lot of those those cameras, when I check them in the first of October, I don't check them again until you know around end of October, first of November. Uh, the bucks start uh, running, looking for does, and things mostly at night. But that, most of the pictures of big bucks are taken at night, so. Um, but what's really interesting is that the information that I gather from these different bucks, most of the time it's not utilized to kill a buck until at least a year down the road, if not more. Yeah, that was something I was going to, I was going to be, I was going to ask you about. Um, so, uh, so I guess let's, let's jump to that since we're, since we're on that right now, tell us about what you, I guess two things. Number one what are you learning from deer or from trail camera pictures right now in the summer? So what are the main things, the goals you have for your summer trail camera pictures? And then next, what are your main goals then for the pictures you're taking during hunting season? And you kind of alluded to it there, but I'd like to hear more about both. Okay. Well, this time of the year, I'm basically looking for bucks that, uh, that I was watching a year before, see which ones survived. And, and what kind of growth they put on from last year's rack. Uh, I'm basically trying to find that one giant buck to go after for this season. And then once I do, you know, then the trail cameras come out in force around, you know, within a mile radius of, of where he's at or where I, you know, find him. But th- if there's one thing that anyone picks up from this whole interview, this is it. And I hope they really pay attention. A buck has a, we talk about patterning bucks, and I think most people get the wrong idea. They think that, well, I see this buck coming to this bean field, you know, every evening and at three at 5 o'clock or whatever. And so that's the pattern that they're trying to – or that's what they think when they think of patterning a buck. But the one pattern that, that is consistent that I've seen over the years is a buck's annual pattern. If a buck shows up at, on your property, say, at, uh, you know, I don't know, say September, 
you can almost mark on your calendar that same buck is going to show up on your property in September every year that he's alive. And the buck I was the six year old buck I was talking to you about earlier that uh, that that's still alive here that, that I may or may not go after. You know, he, he has just kind of reinforced that because I where I get his pictures in velvet in the summer is not where I get his pictures in November. But I can go back through my files. I, I use Reconyx cameras, that, which has some great software where I uh, log the, the better photos by location where they came from. And when I, when I see a buck, I, I can go back and look at the previous year's photos from that very same location, and I guarantee you that buck's there if he's a if he's an older deer and you know it, it kind of hit me well in 2003 i wrote an article for north american whitetail titled same time same place and that's when i started hitting on this and it just kind of reinforces itself every year if i see a mature buck or even a buck that i may want to go after in the future during hunting season i, I remember exactly the the time and the place because he is going to be back at that same time same place next year and like i said if there's one thing that you pick up from this whole interview this is it if you see a mature buck in a, in a certain place at a certain time mark it on your calendar because next year he's going to be there and if you want to kill him you be there first be waiting on him have your stands ready and set um, don't wait till till that time to move in and make your move be set up ahead of time knowing that he's going to be there so, uh, this buck, uh, the six by six that I was just talking about, that uh, the six-year-old. The last two, well, actually, since since I've been watching him, but since he's been mature as a four-year-old and a five-year-old, the last two seasons, he showed up in that draw behind the the barn uh, around the sixth or the seventh of November each year, and. I get his photos off and on from then until about the fifteenth or twentieth. And then he's gone. He's only there during that period, and I know he's only there because of them does that are there. But anyway, I know that if I'm going to kill that buck on that property between the, about the 5th to the 20th of November, I need to spend as much time as I can in that draw because he is going to be there. Uh, and you just got to have faith in that pattern. If there's ever a pattern that holds true with white-tailed bucks, that's it. It's an annual pattern rather than, you know, the pattern that uh, – comes to mind when we talk about patterning bucks. So how tight do you think that these bucks hold to that pattern? I mean, do you ever look, do you ever, do you ever get a daylight picture of a buck on the 6th and then, you know, go back in the next year on the 6th at the same time with an expectation that there's a good chance he'll be there on that date? Or is it more like, you know, within a couple of weeks of this period? Uh, it's not a couple of weeks. It's a couple of days. I may not get his picture on the 6th, but I bet I get it on the 5th or the 7th. And, you know, the older these bucks get, the more they stick to it. It's like they've, they've developed a year-round routine. They, they spend their summers at a certain location. They'll, when they disperse or move, some of them don't actually don't disperse or move at all when they shed their velvet. They'll stay right there close. They spend almost the entire year in a, in a small area. But those bucks that shift their range throughout the season, they're making that same shift, and they're, almost, they're making it during that same week each year, whether – you know, it'd be the last week of August, first week of September. Maybe they wait till October to shift. Whenever it is, they're going to follow that pattern. So, you know, if you've got old trail camera photos to go through 
and there's a buck that you're after that you, you think still alive. Just just look where he was at last year. At a, use those old trail camera photos to to uh, tell you where to be this year. Do you ever look back on those on those trail camera pictures and then do research on the weather pattern? So maybe there was a consistent weather pattern for the the past year or previous years that was making this buck be at that location at that time or like because recently on the podcast we've been talking a lot about what deer what is making deer move like like wind direction weather pressure high pressure systems precipitation and so on are are you seeing anything consistent there you know i i've never really uh tried to correlate the weather with the trail camera photos but i gotta say i listened to the uh podcast you guys did with mark drury here recently and that's one of the best ones i've ever heard he, that was just excellent and a couple of things he said that really caught my attention one was he talked about bucks moving on sunny days <clears throat> well i've always been told you know that the overcast days are better hunting but i noticed myself years ago that those sunny days seemed to get the bucks on their feet <coughs> excuse me But, um, you know, Mark brought that up about the sunny days. The big buck, the 214 buck I shot, I saw that buck four times. Three of those times were on bright, sunny days. There was only one day where it was overcast I saw that buck. But but weather is the biggest pat or what biggest factor, you know, as far as buck movement. There's definitely a lot to to dig into. If you, you know, you know it's easy to dig into those things and, and... – one of the things that me and Dan talked about is the fact that there are so many fascinating correlations potentially between weather, moon, pressure, et cetera, like we talked about with, with Mark Drury. At the same yep. time, it also can get a little overwhelming if you try to look at all those things and then you know start overanalyzing. It seems it's kind of a fine line you have to walk between taking those into account versus you know just getting overwhelmed and you know getting uh, paralysis by analysis, I guess. Yeah, and another thing that I noted with... Uh mark's interview was that he said that uh you know at a certain point in late no, late october he starts hunting every day and he does through november so it really doesn't matter what the weather pattern is he's going to be in the woods and i'm the same way it's just that you know for the guy that doesn't that can't go every day like we can and uh, to try to pinpoint it down when your best time to be there is yeah and i, and I think <laughs> also one of the things that i i looked at too is you know when those when those ideal conditions are, maybe that's when you push into one of your better stand locations versus one of your maybe slightly you know less optimal ones is, is one way I thought I could use that. Yeah, definitely. All right, now, before we move on to our next question for Don, we need to take one more brief break from the action for a word from our sponsor of this podcast episode, the Whitetail Institute of North America. Now, I started using Whitetail Institute food plot seeds just over five years ago when I first started planting food plots. And what really struck me as impressive about these guys was that if I ever had a question, and I had many about food plots, anything really at all, I could call Whitetail Institute up on the phone and instantly be on the line with someone who could help me. And that's actually still the case now. So recently I gave Whitetail Institute a call and got on the line with the vice president of the company, Steve Scott. And I asked him this. Steve, if you had just a two-acre patch of ground that you could plant a food plot on, and you could only choose one single food plot variety for the rest of your life to plant there, what would it be? 
that's not fair. Uh, that's uh, I would you know again I'm I'm going I'm going to uh, uh, take the um the route that I'm going to cheat. I'm going to tell you I'm only going to use one product, but I'm actually going to use two. And if I can, if it's only two acres, uh, half of it would be Imperial Whitetail Clover, which is you know no doubt the gold standard for food plots. Uh, and the reason being is it's uh, extremely high in protein, which is crucial for you know antler development, you know uh, fawn uh, fall development, you know doe lactation, but also the deer love it, so it's great to hunt over. But I'm going to do that in one acre, and in the other acre, I'm going to plant one of our fall and winter annuals, uh, simply for variety, and also uh, you know to, you know especially something like our winter greens product. Because when uh, you know we, we don't have a lot of snow down here, but when it gets really, really, really cold, you know the deer just hammer the winter green. So I know I didn't answer your question fairly, uh, but it, but it's hard to say, you know, just just one particular product. But uh, uh, you know, I think most people that are you know very familiar with it, you know, the, the Imperial White Clover. Uh, if a guy has good soil that holds moisture, Imperial White Clover can't be beat. Well. You did cheat, but it was a good answer, so I'll let it slide, Steve. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I, well, I started to split the field up at about four different things, but I said I wouldn't go there. <laughs> All right. Well, if you want to learn more about what Whitetail Institute has to offer, or if you want to find their number and give them a call yourself, visit whitetailinstitute.com. And now, let's get back to trail cameras. So we talked a little bit about here you know, the goals for the cameras, the fact that during the hunting season, you're looking more so at patterns that can be applied to the future year. Um, taking a step back, can we talk about placement a little bit of our cameras? So during the summer, you mentioned you're putting them on bean fields um, or things like that. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, you know, specifically what, you know, how you're trying to find the right spot in the summer? And then once you go into the hunting season, I know you mentioned pushing into the woods, but can you give us more detail, you know, specifically how you're picking these places, why you're picking these places? On the bean fields, basically, I've just, I found the places where the bucks like to spend the summers and the crop rotation will shift each year, but there, there's usually a specific location where bucks like to summer. And when there's a bean field there, they're, they're always going to be hitting the bean fields. Um, generally, I, I just, through experience, I figure out which corner or where they're going to enter that bean field at. And it, it's been trial and error more than anything. I just said, uh, because in Illinois, you know, we can't bait or anything. You can't have minerals licks out. So I try to catch those bucks where they're going to enter those bean fields. And through trial and error, uh, I've located some spots where I can, I know where to put, just, you know, get a picture of every buck that's using that location. Uh, as the season opens up, one of my favorite tricks is uh, I hang a piece of rope from a tree, um, like a one-inch uh, nylon rope, and I'll go in, I'll do it in the summertime, hang it from that tree, and then I'll spray with, I'll just take a little hand sprayer with some Roundup in it, and I'll spray the vegetation under it. And you know how bucks like to rub their face on grapevines and things like that? Well, they'll do the same thing with a piece of rope. And uh, you put a little bit of buck lure on, on that rope and a trail camera on it, and you can get a picture of every buck that's in the area. 
And I'll actually send you a couple. Of, I'll email you a couple of those trail camera pictures with the rope hanging there and the buck rubbing their face on it for uh, your website to add with this podcast to show yeah. people what I'm talking about. But, uh, you know, with Illinois and some of the regulations we got where I live, you've got to kind of be uh, inventive uh, of ways to get pictures. Uh, you're not allowed to bait at any time during the year. You're not allowed to use salt or anything like that. So I've turned to sense more than anything uh, to get those bucks in front of the camera and then also funnel areas. But a lot of times the funnel areas are where I want my tree stand, and I don't want the trail cameras where my tree stand is going to be. Yeah. So do you do you believe then that those those cameras, if you were to put a camera by your stand location, you're worried about the risk of that camera spooking deer? Right. And it goes back to individual deer. Some deer, they ain't going to bother at all. They'll stand there in front of the camera and just look at it and, you know, take three dozen pictures and other deer, you get one picture and you're never seeing him in front of that camera again, ever right. at, at that location. So, so other than individual deer are different. I just don't want to take a chance on the one I'm after being the buck that spooks one. Has he seen that camera one time? Yeah. Do you do anything to try to minimize the potential of spooking deer? Um, you know, I've heard some people talk about putting their camera in you know, a certain height or doing different things to hide the camera. Do you do anything at all like that? Uh, more than anything, what I do is I try to time when I visit the camera, which is right before rain. If I see, you know, we're supposed to, it's supposed to rain tonight. Well, today I'm out checking off my cameras, hoping that it does rain and washes all my scent away. I also try to, to visit those cameras in midday rather than, you know, early morning, late evening when the deer are going to be active. Okay. Um, and I have put them, you know, especially at fence crossings and things like that. I've, I've put them a little higher in the tree, aiming downward. Uh, but, you know, I'm more interested in making sure I get the buck's picture. And if I spook him, it's not going to be a location real close to a tree stand. So I don't think you're going to get him to totally leave a property because a trail camera flashed in his face once. But he might avoid that spot, that's for sure. Yeah. Do you use, do you have a preference between flash cameras versus infrared and, and how you think those deer affect it or, or impacted yeah, by it? I, I definitely like the infrared. Uh, I just don't see the, the deer spooking the way I used to. And, you know, in years past, I've used about every brand of trail camera out there. And the, the flash cameras definitely spooked more deer. Uh, but again, some didn't mind at all. Others did. But I think there's a higher percentage of them that did. We had a guest on earlier this summer who talked about the fact that he had seen the greatest amount of deer being spooked by cameras being when a trail camera was right on a scrape, like the tree that the deer is, you know, using the licking branch on. Have you Uh, noticed anything like that? that A lot of the deer react differently when a camera's on a scrape or maybe in your case, you know, that mock scrape setup? Uh, not really, actually. Um, one thing I try to avoid is, is putting the camera too close to where I expect that buck to be. You know, when I hang that rope from the tree and put the scent on it, I'll move my camera back uh, at least 20 feet. Okay. Is that your typical distance for all your trail camera setups? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Now, you're doing the, the rope, essentially, mock scrape deal. Do you create you know, traditional mock scrapes with a with a regular licking branch and then just kick open an opening underneath it or anything like that? Very seldom. 
If I do, one trick that I learned years ago is I'll take a piece of, uh, like, cotton cord, and I'll take a piece, and I usually have a few of them in my fanny pack or my backpack that I cut to about, I'll say, 18 inches long. I'll put them in a, uh, I'll do everything I can to keep human scent off of them. Usually I'll, I'll hang them in a tree out, outside somewhere for a couple of weeks, and then when I go gather them, I'll, I'll wear rubber gloves, and I will... Uh, put it in a Ziploc bag, and then I'll put some kind of deer scent. The, the one I like is Smokies, and I like something that the, the local hunters can't just go to the supermarket and, and buy, something that they, they've got to order. You know, it's a little a little more rare. I don't want the buck to smell something on my rope that he smelled last week and something when some guy was hunting him, you know. But anyway, I'll, I'll take that piece of cord uh, that's been in that Ziploc bag with the buck scent, and I'll tie it on the overhead branch, and that that cotton rope or, or cord will hold that scent real well, hmm. and uh, just seems to drive the bucks nuts. Yeah, it, it seems like at least from everything I've seen, those scrape locations or mock scrape locations are one of the best places during the hunting season to get pictures of a lot of bucks. At least when you're trying to get inventory during the season, is that same? Have you seen the same thing? Absolutely. Uh, the first, uh, or actually the last week of October, first part of November, uh, on these ropes, I'll get a picture of every buck that's on the property, no doubt about it. Yeah. They will visit at some point. So, you said earlier that you don't like to put your cameras by tree stand locations, but what happens if you've got maybe one of these mock scrape setups, and at the end of October, you get a bunch of daylight pictures of a buck right by that camera? Will you ever move a tree stand into that area because of those daylight pictures? Well, I've never ran into that situation, but I, I should back up just a little bit because a lot of times I'll use these same rope scrapes um, to narrow down a travel corridor by one of my stands. In other words, if I've if the bucks are traveling through a 100-yard wide area and I can only shoot 30 yards of my bow, you know, I need to get all that, as much of that traffic as possible within 30 yards of my tree stand. And I'll use them rope scrapes to do that. I'll put a, a you know, rope scrape 20, 25 yards from my tree. And most of the bucks traveling that wide corridor will slip over and, and check that scrape once they've, well, that rope, once they've discovered it's there. And occasionally, you know, I will put a, a camera there right in front of the stand, but most of the time I don't. It's just uh, it just depends on the individual property and, and what options are available. If there's other other options, then I definitely keep them away from the stands. Now, are your are your trail camera placements permanent? So, like, you put them up once the season starts and leave them there, or are you continuously moving them? For for example, what I do is okay, I see a big butt from a stand location, or I I have them on trail camera at a particular trail you know a scrape and then i move other trail cameras in the area to try to narrow down his travel pattern is that something you're doing or are you leaving your your trail cameras in the same spot for the most part you know i've got summer locations and then fall locations uh fall winter locations and i I make that shift sometime in september from one to the other And, and then for the most part, once I've, I've shifted them to their fall locations, I pretty much narrowed down 
on each property. I, I've been doing this for a while, so it's not like a new guy going out to do it. Uh, so I pretty much narrowed down where that camera needs to be uh, from several years of, of experience on the property. And now I'll also have cameras, you know, at home ready to go, where if I find a location where I think I need to, to stick a camera, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's in the middle of the rut or what. If I run across some something that, you know, I want to see, you know, say I find a series of big rubs or something, and I want to see the buckets making them, then I'll grab a camera and slip in and, and, and put it in place. But for the most part, most of them are already are there, and then they stay there through the season. So have you have you ever had a situation where something you saw on a trail camera led to you killing a buck that year, or has it always been things that end up being a year to take to actually take action on? Most of the... The way I use trail cameras more than anything is the inventory of the bucks that are on the property. I don't really use them to for stand placement, but it kind of it helps me it helps me use my hunting time more wisely. You know, I'm spending it all in an area where there's a buck I want to shoot. I'm not spending it out on an observation stand or on a property where there's not something that I absolutely know I want to shoot. So I'm not using the, the trail cameras to place my stands. Um, you know, I'm using scouting and experience for that. I, I'm using the trail cameras to to monitor the bucks that are on the property. Gotcha. So it's more so uh, try to understand. You know, when is this buck using this area or this property? And then once the trail cameras tell you that you know to focus there or if the year before you knew that buck you know joe the buck shows up middle of november you know to be in that area in the middle of november because of what the annual pattern is that makes sense exactly that, that's that's a nice summary that 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 clicks for me um i'm curious dan now that you're hearing this and you've heard you know mark jury had something similar to say are you going to be taking this into account with no show Jones, which is a buck that you mentioned that you had seen, you know, last year he showed up at a certain time frame on camera. Are you going to try to apply this this year and try to take advantage of that annual pattern? Right. Um, I really think I, I had I had already planned this because let's see, not this this past year, but the previous year we had an encounter with him and he started hitting some scrapes um, on one particular part of the property. This year he was showing up again, or this past year he was showing up again on that same piece. This year I will have more trail cameras in that area to try to find, because his particular scrapes and travel corridors were, to be honest with you, almost perfect. Where if I decided to place a tree stand in a specific pinch point on a certain wind, he was going to be coming through that way to where that wind would benefit him very, very greatly. So what I'm going to do this year is use those trail cameras to go further back to where he might expose himself on a specific wind direction on that same type of travel pattern, if that makes sense. I got gotcha. you. And then, but, but to answer your question, yes, I will be in a stand location in some of those specific dates. 
Yeah, I'm excited to see how that goes. Now, yeah. while you're while you're mentioning that, Dan, made me think of another question for you, Don. You know, when you're trying to understand if this deer is in the area at a given time, how many trail cameras do you need to really get an accurate idea of that? Do you do like one camera per hundred acres, or is it you know on that type of scale? How many cameras in a given area do we need to figure this out? Well, a lot of that depends on the, the property. Uh, a lot of the properties I hunt are small properties where I might only have one or two tree stands on the entire property. Um, I've had, you know, I don't know, up to probably five or six on 120-acre property cameras, and then I've had one on other properties the same size or bigger. Uh, if you've got some good pinch points, uh, if you got ideal locations, you got one of these ropes where the bucks are hitting it, you can get every every buck's picture on one of them ropes. I mean, I, I promise you, once they start hitting it and find it, and the thing of it is you leave that rope up so it's there year after year after year, and uh, those bucks will be hitting it every year come the end of October, 1st of November. And you won't have to wor- wonder if the buck you're after is is on the property. That that rope's going to tell you. So, do you have you seen that these rope scrape setups? Do you think that actually works better than putting a camera on a a real wild scrape? It works every bit as well. It probably does work better. I'm, I'm just a little bit hesitant to say that, but not much. I guarantee it works as well. Okay. But the thing about it is, is they they. A lot of times a mock scrape works a whole lot better on a field edge or something like that than it does back in the cover. But these ropes work so much better back in the cover. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Any idea why that is? I'm, I'm, I have no idea off the top of my head as I'm thinking about that. Is it just because maybe it holds scent better, the rope, the fabric, do you think? Or what are your, what are your well, thoughts? I think the, the bucks from the pictures I get, they like to rub their face on that, that rope. And you want the biggest rope you can find. I mean at least a one-inch rope. Uh, what I do is I take that rope and tie a knot on the top end and, uh, you know, attach that to the tree branch so it's hanging down. <coughs> and then on the other end, I will fray that so it holds scent better. Makes sense. And keep it about three feet off the ground. Works pretty well. And you're using, you said, that Smokey's preorbital lure. Is that right? Yeah, that's my favorite by far. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Yeah. Well, what I really like about it is the local guy can't just go down to the store and buy it. So if the buck comes by and smells it on my rope, he's probably never smelled that before anywhere else. Right. And and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that scent is supposed to mimic the the scent that comes out of the preorbital gland, which is one of those glands, I think, up near the forehead area on a deer, right? Yeah. And, well, Smokey's actually got... I don't know how many different kinds now. He sends me some each year, but he also he, he's testing new stuff all the time. I usually get a couple of bottles of test scent too. Tell you what, he'd be a good guy for your podcast too, because uh, when it comes to scents and wildlife, he's an expert. Yeah. But uh, and his scent, I mean, it, it draws them in. You get them coming to that rope, and I'm telling you, you will get a picture of every buck on the property. Yeah, I'm I'm in, I'm curious to try that now. Yeah, I'll send you some trail camera pictures here by email. And, if you want to use them on your website or whatever, feel free. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Um, so, so Dan, do you have any more questions for Don related to how he's using cameras during the hunting season or anything? Because I've got another topic, but it's kind of a little bit off topic. So before we move to that, anything else that you need to know 
on this one? No, because I actually the the question that I have for him is off topic as well. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so well, well, might get interesting. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. And you you really never know, with Dan. It could be real or weird. So, <laughs> um, but before we get to that, I'll let you close things out, Dan. Um, a few weeks ago, Don, we were emailing back and forth about you know a different aspect of trail cameras, and that being you know the different trends that you can see or. Uh, things that might be going on within a deer population that you might be able to predict or see based on, you know, what the camera pictures are telling you. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you've done that in the past, what things you've been able to learn through your trail cameras that, that maybe relate to a larger population issue. Um, and then, well, I guess tell us about that. And then I'm curious to see if there's anything you've been seeing recently. Okay. Yeah. In the past, I've noticed things like uh fawn recruitment, uh, I think it was 2012, the year the EHD hit. That summer, even before EHD hit through the Midwest here real hard, I was seeing lots of mature does that never had fawns with them. I was seeing groups of mature does, four or five does at a time, coming out to feed in fields, and there not be a fawn with them. And I'm talking late in the summer when the fawns should have been following them. And, you know, I, I was making the comment to friends, you know, that the fawns are not there. We're going to have a very poor fawn recruitment. And I wasn't seeing anything on on the websites or magazines or anything like that at, at that time. And then, you know, eventually I started seeing a little bit about it. I was also seeing uh, there was one property in particular where I was seeing a lot of coyotes. <clears throat> the predator population was, was really high. And I don't know if that was... And it was at the same time that the fawn recruitment was so low, and I don't know if the two are related or what it was, but uh, those are the kind of trends, you know, that uh, having lots of trail cameras over a wide geographic area rather than just on one or two properties, you can note things like that. And and do you – sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to move on to the second part of your question. So real quick before you do that then – since you've seen these types of trends show up in your pictures in past years, when you're looking through your pictures every time you pull a card, are you actively paying attention to every doe, fawn, every deer because you're trying to look for these types of trends? Um, because I, you know, in all honesty, and maybe I shouldn't do this, but I get pretty distracted just, you know, flipping through these pictures as quickly as I can just to try to see a shooter buck. And I probably miss out on some of these trends because I'm not paying enough attention to everything. Do you actively look for that? You know, at first I didn't. Uh, I was just like you. I was looking for the next shooter buck. I didn't a fawn picture. I was just flipping through it to get to the next buck picture. And but then once you know that was probably that fawn recruitment back in 2012 and the high predator population at the same time. It was so obvious that you know, I didn't have to look that hard to see it. Uh, I mean, in the summertime, you just don't see five does come out into a field to feed and there ain't a fawn with them but they're hanging together and you're seeing their pictures as a group day after day after day uh you know the does typically go off alone to to have their fawns and it's some time before they group up again usually later in the fall so that one kind of jumped out at me but after that point then i started looking for things and you know the one that i've seen here recently and I'll, i'll make a bold prediction here and i may look look bad down the road and have egg on my face or whatever but one thing that really hit me last fall in november was the weather pattern and terry or mark gurry you know hit on that whenever he was talking to you as well but 
the weather last November was the best as far as hunting conditions that I've ever seen in my life. And like I said, I started deer hunting in the 1970s, and I've never seen a November where, you know, in central Illinois where I'm at, it hardly ever snows in November. Maybe towards Thanksgiving you might get a, a dusting. But uh, there was about three or four times where we had snow on the ground in November, and it, it just stayed cold. And, you know, as I'd open my Facebook page uh, every day, I mean, there was just buck after buck after buck that guys were killing right and left. And uh, one thing that happened with the bucks that I was taking inventory or, you know, were on my list that uh, I was keeping track of, bucks up and comers, you know, that weren't quite old enough or, or big enough that I wanted to shoot yet, a lot more of them got killed last year than any time that I've, since I've been running trail cameras. And I thought, go back to last November, this is not good. You know, we just had uh, a couple of bad years of EHD in 2012 and 13, and the herd is starting to rebuild just a hair. And then in 2014, we have this perfect weather where the bucks just get slaughtered right and left. And so going into this summer, I thought I'm going to keep a real close eye on what I'm seeing as far as bucks on, on my trail cameras because I was expecting not to see the numbers of bucks that I, I had in past summers, and that's exactly what I've seen. I think that the weather was so perfect last fall that we killed a lot of bucks that normally would have lived. Uh, typically in November, you know, you have warm periods, and you'll get cold for two or three days. You have some good hunting, and it'll warm back up, and that just didn't happen. And those bucks just continued to fall, and we shot bucks that normally would have made it to this year. And I'm seeing that on my trail camera pictures. And, and my prediction is that the buck harvest in a lot of Midwestern states is going to be down. Now, I am seeing I'm seeing a lot of young bucks, the year-and-a-half-olds, and I'm seeing several of the older bucks, but it's almost like the two- and three-year-olds are, are missing age groups. There's just not near as many of them. And I think those were the bucks that were probably the most vulnerable last fall uh, when they were a year younger, and a lot of those got killed. So uh, there's going to be some great bucks killed this fall. There's no doubt about it. I, I've got trail camera pictures of probably as many old, older age class bucks, you know, four and a half and older as I've ever had, but the, and, and plenty of yearlings as well. But it's those two and three and, and some four-year-olds that just aren't quite there as they have been in past years, and I attribute it to last November's weather. Is, uh, it, makes, it makes a lot of logical sense. I never thought about that, but... You're so right that there probably were a lot more bucks taken than usual, especially, like you said, those two- and three-year-olds that will really get moving on those cold days because that weather was so ideal. Dan, right. Dan, have you seen, when you when you hear this, have you noticed anything in your cameras that kind of coincides with what he said? Yeah, I tell you what, it's funny you say that because, what was it, two years ago, all I was, two or three years ago, I was seeing a gap like not a lot of three-year-olds, but I was seeing a, an upper age class and a lower, you know, a lower age class, not right in the middle. Yep. And, and then this year, uh, you know, now later on the line, I, I am hardly getting any pictures of that. Those one, I'm getting some, but not as much as I used to of those one twenties, those, you know, those, those two and those two-year-olds. I want to say tons of spikes, but no two-year-olds for some reason. Yeah, and the interesting, or the 
I guess it's not really interesting, it's kind of unfortunate, is that the, the deer herds in the Midwest were really hammered with EHD in, in 2012 and 13. And then 2014, we didn't have it as bad, and they were the herds were starting to recover just a little, at least in the, the areas that I hunt. And then the perfect weather comes along and, and allows hunters to drop them right and left. And, and I think it, it drove harvest figures up just a little bit more, and it it made the, the herd look just a little bit better uh, for the state biologist than it really was because the, the weather was so non-typical, if you will, during the peak of the rut. Yeah, I hope that we don't see a big drop again be, that was, you know, overinflated because of the significant harvest we had last year due to weather. Um, mm-hmm. That is a scary thing to think about now that you mention it. Uh, I hope that's not the case, but you, you make a lot of sense. Uh, the good thing, if there is a good thing about it, is that uh, I have seen as many mature bucks or got pictures of as many mature bucks this summer as I probably ever have. It's just the the middle-aged bucks are the ones that are hurting, which is going to affect us a couple of years down the road. Yeah, it will. One of the things I always thought, you know, after the big EHD outbreak of 2012 and then 13, a little bit more, my assumption was that, you know, we lost significant portions of the deer herd during those time periods. The deer population went way down. But for mm-hmm. the bucks that did survive, with the fact that there's so much less competition for food, my assumption was that you'd get a lot of deer really reaching their potential because there was no lack of nutrition for them. They weren't competing with tons and tons of other deer. I figured in those couple of years after 12, 13, you know, I figured 14 and 15, you'd start seeing some of these bucks that got to take advantage of that extra food in some places that maybe in past years they wouldn't have. I don't know now if this is going to, you know, if there was any truth to that, I wonder if this might, you know, negate that anyways. Yeah, and there's also the social aspect. Uh, a deer uh, is a social animal, but my experience with captive deer, you know, you start crowding them into a pen or, or even wild ones. You get too many in the in a for the habitat, and it's stressful on them. And they're just not near as productive in terms of antler growth and fawn production as when their numbers are down. So, I mean, this summer I've seen lots of fawns and lots of twins, even some triplets. And it's almost like Mother Nature knows that, you know, the habitat can withstand it. Let's crank up the production on these animals, and and that's what happens. Yeah, nature has a way. Yep. I uh, I think that what you just mentioned is, is exactly what's happening on one of my main farms I hunt in Michigan, where uh, where the doe population has just gotten out of control I've tried, but I've not done enough to, to to control that doe population. I don't think my neighbors are at all. And, um, you know, for a few years, I was seeing more mature bucks every year. And then the last two years, it's just, it's gone way downhill. There's no old deer, um, you know, one or two, three-year-olds maybe. It's just, it just seems like, as far as I can tell, unless there's a new hunters around here that are shooting everything in the world, um, mm-hmm. my best guess is that this doe population has just gotten way too dense to the point where it is overcrowding those bucks and, you know, making them stressed, not as much food yeah. available. And, and they're moving to places where they've got a little more breathing room. I think social stress on bucks is, is real. Uh, I, I don't know how much effect it has on antler growth and things, but, uh, social stress is, is definitely real. Yeah. I, uh, I've got my work cut out for me this year. Um, filling some doe tags, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, 
Dan, any other questions for Don on that topic or whatever off-the-wall thing you might have in your head? <laughs> it's not too off-the-wall. But my, <laughs> my, my, my question is, and it, it's completely out of nowhere, you mentioned uh, a little bit about you know wearing rubber gloves when you, you do that rope thing. And um, I, I'm just curious on what your scent control regimen is for actually hunting while you're in the tree stand. It's probably, uh, my scent control regimen is probably the least of anyone you've ever talked to. I, I use the wind. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I try to keep my clothes clean, put them in a tub, I put them on when I get to my hunting area and all that. I don't spray down with sprays, I don't wear the scent elimination clothing. The wind is the key, and the last time uh, we spoke back in December, you know, I, I talked about this some too. A uh, buck, he wants to move when the, and he's only going to move, a mature buck is only going to move when he thinks he's safe. Um, and that's when the wind conditions are in his favor, the direction uh, from where he's at, where he wants to go. There's a, a wind direction that will allow him to do that safely, and that's when he's going to do it. Uh, I've just learned to, to play the wind, and the wind is my scent control. So this is a topic that has been increasingly fascinating to me, and I think it's a big part of the jump for people when they start going from just you know trying to shoot any deer to trying to shoot a mature buck is understanding the fact that mature bucks want to move with the wind in their favor in some way. But specifically, can you explain to us you know, what you found to be the case, given your experience, when it comes to how a buck wants to enter a feeding area? and then how a buck wants to enter a bedding area, how does he like the wind in both of those two situations, typically, from what you've seen? Well, in the morning when a buck's coming back to bed, they love to, to uh, enter the, the bedding area with a crosswind. And what they'll do is they'll walk the downwind edge of the, of the bedding area uh, what's even more ideal than a crosswind is a quartering wind, where the wind's quartering out of the bedding area into his nose. And so what they, a mature buck does a lot of times is he'll walk that downwind edge with the wind quartering into his nose out of out of the cover where he's going to bed. He'll walk the you know, almost the entire edge of that cover, and then he will J-hook right back into it. And when he J-hooks back into it, a lot of times a guy, if a hunter sees him, doesn't realize what's happened. Once he's made that turn, then that wind's not quartering into his nose, it's quartering into his butt, and it's almost like he's got a tailwind coming in. But what everybody seems to miss is that before that buck ever entered with a tailwind, he had already scent-checked it with the perfect wind conditions for him to do so. And that's how they like to bed, and there is no better stand sight in early November before the rut's really going for the dozer and heat, when those bucks are in the seeking phase, you get on the dead downwind edge of bedding cover, and those bucks will run that all day long because they can run that edge and they can scent check any hot does that are in there. At the same time, they can scent check for cover. So that's how, how they, they like to do it uh, when they're coming back to bed. And then in the evenings, you know, if he's headed towards that, that feeding area, he wants that, that wind at least quartering into his nose. So as he's going from feeding to bedding and that wind's quartering into his nose, if you're on the right side of the trail, then, then your scent's going to be blown off to the side of him instead of at him. If you're on the wrong side of the trail, then he's going to pick you off. Yeah, that's, that's, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I have to, 
I have to I have to draw this down. I think on a piece of paper to make sure I'm getting it all right in my head. But yeah. it, it does make sense. And um, what about when they actually bed? From what I've always understood, when they actually you know get in their bed, they typically like to be able to watch in front of them and then have the wind come over their back so they can smell what's behind them. Is that consistent with what you've what you believe or what you've seen? Yeah, definitely. Okay. And then the other thing is when the buck comes into bed, say. You know, you you might have, say, 20 acres of bedding cover. But I believe that an individual buck has a specific location within that 20 acres that he wants to bed when the wind's in a certain direction. And he might have a, a totally different location to bed if the wind's in a different direction. Yeah. So does that is that a big factor then when you're choosing where to hunt on a given day or a given evening or whatever? Are you thinking, okay, based on this wind direction, where will this buck most likely want to be? Is that something you try to figure out before the season starts? Yeah, and, and a lot of that's based on past year's experience. But when I go hunt a stand, first of all, the stand I pick for a, a specific hunt is all based on the wind direction. But I'm expecting a buck to do an exact thing. I'm expecting him to be bedded in an exact location. I'm expecting him to, to get up and head to a specific feeding area. And then I give him a wind that he that will allow him to do so and feel comfortable doing so, but yet it's set in such a way that he can't smell me. Yeah. And I, you know, one phrase I've used is the wind's almost wrong for me and almost right for the buck. Yeah. I I just love this. Like this, like cat and mouse little chess match of just trying to get these just in the right place based on you know. You're expecting a buck to be in a certain place, to go to a certain place in a certain way, and thinking through all these pieces and trying to get yourself in just the perfect location. Like that challenge right there is what gets me so excited talking about this stuff. And once it falls into place for you, and, and you see it happen, it just each each successive buck becomes easier. And I think that most hunters, the the wind is what keeps most hunters from consistently killing big deer. I think stand placement, most guys have that figured out. But once they've got their stand in place, then you need to wait for the right wind conditions to hunt it. And I think most guys go in, they've hung their stand in the right location, but then they come back before the wind is right. They just come back whenever it's convenient for them. You know, I don't have to work Saturday, so Saturday morning I'm going to go hunt this stand. And they have no idea what the wind is going to be Saturday morning. And most of the time they don't even have any idea what the wind direction is once they're sitting there <laughs> yeah and you know they, they think that the the guys that are consistently killing mature bucks just know where to put their tree stands but i think the average hunter really knows where to put his tree stands i think it's these little tidbits like the wind if they could just master the wind then they'd be killing big deer consistently and I don't know that really we we ever master it. I don't. I know I haven't. I I still you know. Every season I'm I'm picking up, you know, new things about the wind, especially as you hunt new properties. You got to realize what the wind's doing from a particular stand. You may think that it's blowing out of the south, and you get to your stand, and it's actually blowing out of the north from from that exact location as it swirls around, or or you know something like that. Thermals get to working, but you always you got to master where your scent's going while you're in a, a stand and how that's going to affect the buck that you expect to, to pass by yeah yeah it's um it's not something that 
you know, you can just guess and it'll always be right. You really do, to your point, have to check it when you're in your stand and pay attention mm-hmm. to that and, and consistently try to learn from this every time you go out and hunt because it's it's not, like you said, something you can just easily master. No, it's a continual learning process, but once you get the basics figured out and especially once you get that first mature buck to walk by doing what you thought he would do and what you expect him to do, once you see it and then it just then it starts to click and then the next buck is a little bit easier and before long you know every buck you kill you've killed him on purpose because he did exactly what you was expecting him to do yeah it's pretty cool when it starts falling into place that's for sure yeah well uh we as much as i would like to keep on kind of picking your brain about these things because i'm i'm pretty geeked right now i'm enjoying this um we are coming up on time and we've got to close things up. But, Don, if people want to learn more from you, you know, check out your books or any of the other things you're doing, where can they go online to find that stuff? Well, my website is HigginsOutdoors.com. That's H-I-G-G-I-N-S, Outdoors.com. And I've got a couple books out and do some consulting work and things like that. So I'd be glad to answer anyone's emails or, or what have you. Awesome. Well, we will include a link to your website um, on this podcast blog post. So if anyone listening, if you want to do that, which I highly recommend, I really recommend his books and, and really all the resources that Don is putting out there and his magazine articles. I mean, as you can tell after listening to him here for the last hour, it's top notch. He's got a lot to share. So definitely check that out. And uh, Don, good luck this season and thank you so much for joining us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Mark and Dan and if you could ever use me again, don't hesitate to, to get a hold of me, whether it's a quote for a magazine or another podcast, whatever. I'd be glad to help you out. Absolutely. Well, uh, be careful what you offer because uh, I will <laughs> most likely take you up on it. <laughs> well, that sounds great. hope you guys both have a good season. All right. Thanks a lot, Don. Have a good <laughs> one. Take care. Bye. All right. So there you have it. Another podcast episode in the books. And I thought this was super interesting. I love Don's thoughts on the wind and the different trends you could learn from trail cameras, and some cool tricks there, don't you think, like using the rope for, for scrapes and whatnot. I think we can all learn a thing or two here from Don. So hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you found some things that you can apply to the season that's upcoming and that's coming pretty fast here. So enjoy the coming weeks. Get out there. Do your work. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, we would love it, love it, love it if you could take a quick second to leave a rating or review on iTunes. We really appreciate that. If you haven't subscribed yet, we also think that's a great idea. And, um, you know, otherwise, I think we just need to shut her down here. Of course, we'd like to thank our partners who help make the Wired to Hunt podcast possible. So, big thank you to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And of course, and most importantly, thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your feedback. And we appreciate the fact that you take a little time out of your day to hang out with us, to talk deer, to learn a few new things. So have a great week and stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today 
at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.